Hello there, and welcome to the Irish Mythology Podcast. I'm Marcus Ogishkin. And I'm Stephanie Nihirni. That was a very vigorous hello there you gave. Anyway, um, after a short break from the story of the two-a-day last episode, where we told the tale of the druid that killed John the Baptist, we're back to see what happens after the gods defeat the fur bullock in battle. Yeah, you might remember that despite leading the two-a-day to victory in battle against the Firbolg, Nuda loses his position as chief of the gods after Shrang cuts off his arm. So he gets replaced by Brez, and there seems to be a bit of scheming involved in his rise to power. Is this a foreshadowing of trouble for the two-a-day, we ask? Well, we're going to get the answer to that question today as we see what the rule of Brez is like through the eyes of the god Akma. You might remember him from the episode where the two-a-day defeated the Firbolg as the very well-groomed god with the gift of the gab. Yeah, and he has this gift of being able to rouse troops to fight with his eloquent speech. But he's much better known today for something else, and that is the invention of the Ohm alphabet. You might have seen it before. You'll usually find it carved vertically into stone monuments, and it will appear as kind of a series of lines and, and crosses and so on. And there are 400 of these monuments scattered all over Ireland and Western Britain. And we'll get into that in a bit more detail just in a little bit. We'll also talk a bit about a chap called Phineas Farsad, who in some texts is credited with the invention of Ohm and the Irish language. And there's also a possible link uh, to that Ord wheel we talked about last week. And I think we should just take a minute to give some respect to what a great name Phineas Farsad is. <laughs> it is. Just, yeah. yeah, it's great. Anyway, but in the meantime... Uh, let's jump straight into our story and see how Akma is faring under the rule of Brez. Fado, Fado, and Aaron. It is a troubled time for the two a day and the mortals of this emerald land. Winter has come and hearts are cold, for there is no wood to burn. Only Brez, the chief of the two a day, ruler of Ireland, is warmed by a fire. For him and his cronies, all things are abundant. While scores of gods, whose power and majesty once made fierce warriors tremble, whose sorcery and skill was too much for the greatest of all druids, cower in small, cold dwellings built from mud, great Brez, whose power seems infinite, enjoys every luxury that existence has to offer. The chief's lavish lifestyle is paid for by the toil of others, by the labour of the gods who once fought by his side and the mortals they swore to protect. His great fort, Rathbrez, costs nothing but the stuff it is made of and the humiliation of the Dacta. The Dacta whose power controls the seasons, who is able to feed all from his bottomless cauldron, is forced for his chief to build from dawn to dusk. His mighty club once used to give life or take it away, is now used to dig great ditches, a mere labourer's tool. While the Dagda works, his magic harp sits silent. The wheel of the year stops turning and winter remains. He is so weary that he cannot muster the power to draw sustenance from his cauldron. The once noble god subsists on meagre rations. And what's worse, every night he gives up a third of his ration to the blind man, Cridmel, 
for his honour demands that he provides for those who cannot provide for themselves. When the fort is built, Bres has the Dagda dig trenches all over the land, so he may not rest. If the Dagda is one who excels at every skill, then Bres has perfected three. The art of humiliation, the craft of exploitation, and the technique of tyranny. But no tyrant can rule forever, for every act of exploitation creates a link in a chain, and in the humiliation of wearing those chains, the sigh of the oppressed can be heard, initially a whimper, taken by the wind, amplified, it rattles the chains of tyranny and becomes a song of rebellion. For every being who hears this song awakens, the almost extinguished spark of their soul ignites and they strike out for their freedom and the chains that once bound them will strangle their oppressor. The great two-a-day poet and warrior Akma, who is known for his strength, collects firewood on Clare Island for his chief. Every day he wades through Clue Bay and on to Rathbrez. He labours for nine days without rest, with meagre rations, and each day he loses two-thirds of the wood on his journey. Monday, swept along by the tide, Tuesday, struggling against the mass of the sea. Wednesday, waves crashing against his chest. Thursday, salt water burning his red raw thighs. On and on and on he goes. On the ninth day, he emerges from the sea, dishevelled, a shadow of his former glory that fought so hard and fearlessly in the Battle of Moitura. He is weak from the hunger the hard work and the pain. He drops the third of his sticks that remain. Tears form in his eyes, his legs give way. He falls to the ground. His mouth opens wide, but there's no sound. He can't cry. The once honeyed tongue reaches out, but there are no words to be found. He can only sigh and gasp. He rubs his scaldy eyes and looks at his scattered hull. Birch, rowan, alder, willow, ash, whitethorn, oak. These are words. Each word is a letter. Words that form words. Akma remains on the beach for nine days and nine nights, recovering his strength and studying the words that lie before him. At first, he eats seaweed that he has scavenged, dulse, kelp and carrageen moss. He lights a fire for himself and boils and filters seawater to drink. Before long, he has the strength to collect razor clams, mussels, scallops and crab. Akma scavenges food in the morning, studies the words of the trees in the afternoon, composes poetry in the evening and meditates on the things he has learned at night. On the ninth night, he receives a revelation. His health now restored, he takes his knife and carves these words on pieces of wood. The ones you love and the product of your labour will be carried away to a land beyond the sea if you do not take heed of these words and use them for your protection. He takes the carved branches and sends them out on the wind to the four corners 
of Ireland. Well, that was short and sweet, but it's even shorter in the original, and we drew from a couple of other sources to flesh out the story. So we mentioned earlier the story comes from the saga of the Great Battle of Maitura, which is also known as the Second Battle of Maitura, or simply Cahmaiturid in the original Middle Irish text. So in that original manuscript compiled between the 12th and 16th centuries, the story of Akma collecting wood from Clue Bay is told over three sentences. And I think this would actually be a really good point at which to just say a couple of words on the pronunciation that we're using of the name Akma. There are a few different sort of accepted, I guess, pronunciations of this uh, deity of their name. So we're going with Akma, which is probably the closest to uh, the old Irish pronunciation. But other people do use Ogma, um, and then some people use Oma, depending on the, the dialect of Irish or, or the area in which they're from. But each of those is, is fine to use. But anyway, back to the, the text, and it doesn't actually mention Ogma's discovery or invention of the Ohm system of writing. For that, we went to In Lower Ohm, um, or the Ohm Tract, which appears in the 14th century Book of Ballymote. In that text, it mentions that Akma invented Ohm, but it doesn't go into any real detail on how this came about. But it does mention that Akma carved a warning to the god Lu that his wife would be carried away from him into fairyland. Now, Lu hasn't featured in our story yet, but it seemed apt to place the invention of Ohm here as the main form of the alphabet has each letter represent a type of tree and he is carrying and dropping branches of trees. We'll talk about Ohm in a bit more detail later on in the episode, but first we want to talk a bit about what's actually going on in this story. So a lot has changed for the two a day since they defeated the Firbolg, and it seems like their victory has turned sour, and Brez wasn't really the right choice of chief after all. So when the story begins, the Dacta, a powerful deity and one of the heroes of the first battle of Moitura, um, that we covered in episodes three to five, is doing hard labour building forts and trenches for Brez. He's so worn out from the work that he has no access to his usual, usual range of abilities and is utterly humiliated. So we soon learn that these intolerable conditions are faced by the other gods of the two a day as well, except for Brez, of course. And in Akma's warning, there's a suggestion that it isn't just Brez that is prospering from the labour of the two a day, that some of the tribute paid to Brez by the tribes is, is actually going somewhere somewhere else beyond the sea. So it's all, it's all very shadowy and not great for the people doing the labour. But if you know the story, you'll probably know where it's going and why. But if not, you'll have to wait for future episodes to find out. The thing that really strikes a chord for me in the time of COVID-19 and all the restrictions we're facing while still going out to our jobs is the actual story of Akuma here. You'll remember from episode five that he is this great poet and orator. He's cultured and he's eloquent, but Brez has him out collecting wood for his fire working all the hours and not having the time or energy to do any of the things he loves, the things that define him as an individual and as a deity. Yeah, there was 
an academic of some character on the radio there the other week on Morning Ireland and I remember hearing it and he said now you might have to sit down for this part he said something along the lines of if we are going to continue to go to school and to work um, during the time of COVID we're going to have to reserve our contacts for these settings alone <laughs> would you be well? <laughs> it's fairly dystopian isn't it like I've read works of dystopian fiction that actually aren't as bad as that Oh look! Imagine, like, imagine being actually expected to go and do a day's work every day, and then not be able to meet your friends or socialize in any way. I mean, I don't know. Like, what? Sure, what's the point in having a job if you can't actually do the things that make you happy? I don't know. I I don't want to be accused of any. I I'm wear I wear a mask and I wash my hands and I'm social distance and I don't want any complaining. I'm allowed. I'm allowed to say that this is all a bit strange. And if you do want to make a complaint, then write it to me in Ohm. And then, <laughs> and then I listen, okay? Yeah. Be grand. It's funny, like, you know, in the year 2020, and we're seeing this medieval manuscript, possibly based on 9th century material as a metaphor for what's happening now. But anyway, the, the great god of poetry and oration is toiling away, and he's drained of all his energy and power, just like me after coming home on the train. <laughs> <laughs> Not saying I'm, you know, a god of eloquence or anything, but sure. <laughs> Oh, bothered you there. <laughs> 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 Comparing yourself to this god of poetry. Ah, well, you know, sure we get there. Coming in on the intercity service, huh? <laughs> yeah. Your poems. Agma sitting across from you in the dark. Sounds like a Niall, it's a Niall Gaiman. Neil Gaiman. Niall Gaiman says cousin from Mullingar. Well, Gaiman from the road there. Sure, all I, the Gaimans are lovely people. His father was a gentleman. <laughs> anyway, go on. <laughs> so just when Akma can't take any more, he gets this revelation. And in this, his darkest hour, uh, comes the beginning of resistance to Brez's rule. I actually think that there's a real anti-work undercurrent to this story. Um, now, we do have to be wary, though, when discussing these stories, not to over-romanticise them or maybe read things into them that we just want to see ourselves. Because this is something that often happens with other aspects of early Irish society. Uh, Brehan Law, in particular, is a good example of that. And we'll, we, we will discuss that, actually, in, in depth in a future episode. But like Brehan Law, the most progressive ideas found within the myths of our ancestors were really only applied to the upper class. Um, for a better known example of this, you could probably look at, you know, ancient Greek society where only slaves laboured while the free citizens spent their time creating art and taking part in sports and, and governing themselves and all those nice things. I mean, we're not we're not all that far from it, but anyway. <laughs> and that's all true, but within the notion that labour is humiliating for the gods and by extension the nobility is the notion that all work and no play is degrading for everyone and really it's not good enough to live a life of toil and not realise your full potential as a human being in the short time you have on this earth. And it's an idea that defined a lot of the 20th century as trade unions fought for shorter working hours and more leisure time. And you know, not to get all political, but only for those efforts. We wouldn't be sitting here making this podcast and actually... I just think this is a good time to mention the sad passing of David Graeber, who wrote about a lot of this stuff. And I was very sad to hear of his passing. And, you know, some some of the, the, the stuff in there, I actually came to 
um, through him. So R.I.P. David Graeber. Yeah, no, I was also very saddened to hear of uh, the passing of David Graeber. If you have an interest and on understanding more about anti-work undercurrents that you can read in other mythologies, I'd suggest reading some of his work. Not that he talks about mythology, but... A little bit. He just mentioned the Greek thing. He does, yeah. But anyway... It's maybe we can, you know, consider Akuma to be the patron god of all of us who are now in full time jobs to pay the bills. But a uh, dream of being able to spend our time writing poetry and making lovely podcasts like this. Support our Patreon. You can be our Akuma. <laughs> yeah. That's not too different from his classical role in Irish mythology. He is a god of poetry and eloquent speech. He's also known as a strong man and a warrior. And we saw in the first battle of Moitura how he rallied the troops to fight the Firbolg and fought bravely himself, even leading a battalion of troops. In fact, one of the epithets he goes by is Trenher, which means strong man. Now, he bears some similarities to the Gaulish deity Ogmios, Gaul being the name for France uh, when the Celtic languages were spoken there. The most obvious similarity there is the name, of course, but Ogmios is also the god of eloquence and oratory, as well as being a strong man. The second century CE Greek writer Lucian of Samosata described Ogmios, uh, referencing a painting he saw and a conversation with a Gaul as an old man, bald and burnt by the sun, drawing a band of smiling men behind him by chains that were attached to his tongue. And that's interesting as well because he's described uh, as being sunburnt here and another of Akma's epithets is Greenanyak, which means sun-faced. And another thing that grabbed my attention about Lucian's account was that Agmius is apparently associated with the Greek figure Heracles, who you probably know better by his Latin name Hercules. What's interesting is that Heracles is a strong man isn't associated with eloquence by the Greeks. And there's a quote here from Lucian's account that I'm going to read out, and he's actually quoting the Gaul he conversed with here. And I'm assuming that the word Celt is added in the translation because the Gauls didn't actually call themselves Celts. Stranger, I will tell you the secret of the painting, for you seem very much troubled about it. We Celts do not consider the power of speech to be Hermes as you Greeks do, but we represent it by means of Heracles, because he is much stronger than Hermes. So if this old man Heracles, the, spe- the power of speech, draws men after him, tied to his tongue by their ears, you have no reason to wonder, as you must be aware of the close connection between the ears and the tongue. In a word, we Celts are of the opinion that Heracles himself performed everything by the power of words as he was a wise fellow, and that most of his compulsion was affected by persuasion. His weapons are his utterances, which are sharp and well well aimed, swift to pierce the mind, and you too say that words have wings. It's interesting that they mention Hermes here, because if anyone is similar to him in Irish mythology, it's actually the Dagda. He'll be the main focus of a future episode, but we thought that this was worth a mention. Now, Hermes is synonymous with Mercury in the Roman pantheon, 
And the Romans considered Odin to be the same as Mercury, while Thor, who is far from eloquent, is the strongman figure within uh, Norse mythology. Now, you may also be aware that in Norse mythology, Odin is create is credited, sorry, with discovering the Scandinavian equivalent of Om, and that they're the runes. Um, so why not his counterpart in Irish mythology? We ask. Well, the answer may illustrate what kind of society existed in Ireland at the time of the origin myth of Ohm. And if Ogma's reputation as a strong man is anything to go by, it was probable that it was quite violent and an epoch where the warrior caste was actually the ruling class. As we saw in episode 5, Ogma uses his poetic abilities to rouse warriors to battle and the Gaulish image of Ogmius leading followers by a chain connected to his tongue backs this up too, but we might get some clues from the Ohm itself. So Ohm is a system of writing, like the alphabet or the Elder Fudurk or Younger Fudurk, better known as runes from Scandinavia. The curious thing, however, is that the only examples of it that are contemporary to the period of its use are found on upright stone monuments. So essentially what we mean here is that the only remaining examples of Ohm from when it was used as the only form of written communication are on the stones. You do see it in manuscripts uh, and, and certain kind of writing, but that is actually the, that those depictions of Ohm are from much, much later on. So the inscriptions on these stones are vertical, often using the edge of the stone as a margin. And the inscriptions are read from the bottom left to top left and from the top right to bottom right. So we and I've put some pictures up on our Instagram page uh, if, if you want to go and have a look and, and see what it is exactly we're talking about. But anyway, there, there's around 400 of these Ohm stones that we know of. The majority of these are found in the south of Ireland, the bulk of which are in counties Kerry and Cork. Uh, there are a lesser number scattered throughout the rest of Ireland and also Wales, the Isle of Man and Devon and Cornwall oh, and also the west of Scotland. All of these places are places where the Druidic religions survived the longest. But even outside of Ireland, the vast majority of these inscriptions are in a language classified by linguists as primitive Irish, a member of the Celtic family of languages that was at least the main language of learning prior to the advent of Old Irish and Latin. There are some later stones with Old Irish inscriptions and some in Wales, some bilingual stones in early, Ir or early Welsh even and Latin as well as a number in Pictish, a language which was spoken in parts of Scotland in ancient times. Um, I felt like Rachel and friends there saying, <laughs> this, this dresser is from days of yore. Uh, yes, Pictish was spoken in Scotland in ancient times. Uh, Mark wrote that line. The vast majority of the stones are inscribed with personal names. So actually the most likely are the, the most likely thing is that these are actually memorials to people and those names actually do give us some clues as to the society that gave rise to them so a lot of these names include references to hounds or wolves battles fires so you've got ones like a uh, katuvir uh, which is like a man of battle or kunamagliuch prince of hounds or prince of wolves which is very um you know, it sounds a bit Games of Thrones, Game of Thronesy, but I can um, imagine Kevin Costner playing him. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> oh 
God, is he still going? Anyway. Oh, I haven't seen anything of him in a while. There. Anyway, Prince of Wolves. That adds credence to the theory that Akma, as god of this writing, was associated with both eloquent speech and battle and is also linked to the Gaulish Ogmios. Well, we'll put some more information in the show notes and if you want to take a deep dive into this stuff, there are a lot of articles in magazines like Archaeology Ireland and loads of journal articles that you can read online. And as usual, Dukas.ie is a great source. There's a lot of entries in the school schools collection that mention Ohm. There's one actually about some men collecting stones to build Wicklow Pier and they come across an Ohm stone which, according to the story, was inscribed, Here lieth a princess. She was possessed of the devil. I feel like a Rex probably wrote that. I want that on my headstone. <laughs> Let it be known, people. <laughs> I'm telling you now. Um, it'll be that or leave it with me. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, Ducas is fantastic. It has some absolutely gas stories um and and things collected on there i like this one which comes from lachabeg in galway and just read it out this entry says about a hundred yards from our house there is a huge stone about three feet long and a foot and a half in width there is writing on it like little crosses no one could read the writing a few years ago some busybody broke the top part of the stone and and it is left up against the wall Though the ohm is on it all the time, it is supposed that a lame soldier was buried beneath it. So, yeah, busybodies. Obviously, as big a problem in the 1930s. Love curtain when, twitching going on. Yeah, Valley of the Squinting Windows. Yeah. And funny enough... Um, Actually, I, that's a great book. I would it, recommend it to anyone who is listening to this. Brinsley McNamara. Fantastic book. Anyway. Very relevant to our times as well. <clears throat> but... um. Wasn't um, St. Patrick himself renowned for going around smashing up old pagan stuff? So maybe it could be an old story that was passed down that just lost him out of the story. Or maybe it was just somebody that read one of the stories about him smashing up pagan stuff and uh, decided to have a go at it. Or maybe it was like the, I don't know, the kind of the, the 1800s equivalent of, you know, the chunklas that go kicking wing mirrors off cars. Like maybe someone just smashed it. Like. Or maybe it was just a local council and they wanted to build a road. Sure, you know, they're... <laughs> Notorious for doing stuff stuff like that. <laughs> oh, God, who knows? Mm. Anyway, we were saying earlier that a lot of what we know about Ohm comes from manuscripts from the later medieval period, particularly material collected in the Book of Ballymote, uh, including the aforementioned Ohm tract, and uh, you're going to have to pronounce this one. Orcept, Orcept, Nanakis. Can we just call it the Scholar's Primer and be done with it? It's called the Scholar's Primer. Anyway, it's here that the idea of the letters representing trees comes from, and this may have been a traditional association or it could have come about later in the medieval period, it's hard to tell. But anyway, the tree ohm is probably the best known, but the ohm tract contains information on. 100 different forms of the alphabet where the letters represent different types of whatever the name suggests so you have things like the bird ohm and water ohm and color ohm and dog ohm and so on and so forth anyway we don't know for sure how old these variants are but they could indeed stretch back to pre-christian times and could have been used as monomic devices uh, to aid learning for those training to be druids and poets and judges and all of that. 
So there is also a theory uh, that some people have that Oum may have been used for divination. So in the saga, the wooing of Atain, it is used by a druid for this purpose. And this occurs actually in a few other tales, but other than these, there isn't a massive amount of information on the use. So I would be, I, I would reserve judgment on it, I suppose. There is, however, an interesting diagram in the Oum tract, which is a circle containing smaller symmetrical circles with Oum letters at intervals around them. Uh, you might remember Moiru's Ord Wheel from the last episode and that we mentioned the possibility that it was used for divination. So we're wondering, like, could this circular diagram from the own tract be related to this? And there might have been larger versions of this and an ore that you spun around and saw what symbols it landed on. Uh, a bit like the big wheel in Winning Streak, but instead of, you know, the cash prizes, you get a prediction of your future. Marty Whelan there, spinning the wheel. I was just about to say, <laughs> could you imagine... Marty Whelan done up as a druid. Yeah. What's Marty doing these days? Oh, well, he's on Lyric FM in the morning, but then he does this mad version of winning streak where he tells you, like, how you know your fate. <laughs> Three crows circle up ahead. <laughs> Sitting in the audience is real dicey. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so the own tract uh, is the main source for the belief that Akma discovered or invented Ohm. And though the names of the god and the script, respectively, are another enormous clue, there isn't a lot of detail in the story of how Akma came up with Oum itself, and it really only serves as an introduction to the kind of technical information that's contained in the manuscript. So I'll just read this part out. Now, Akma, a man well-skilled in speech and in poetry, invented the Oum. The cause of its invention as a proof of his ingenuity and that this speech should belong to the learned apart to the exclusion of rustics and herdsmen. Whence the Ohm got its name according to sound and matter, who are the father and the mother of the Ohm? What is the first name that was written by Ohm? In what letter it was written and why B precedes every letter? Ohm from Akuma was first invented in respect to the sound according to matter. However, Ohm is Ohum, perfect alliteration which the poets applied to poetry by means of it. For by letters Gaelic is measured by the poets. The father of Ohm is Akuma, the mother of Ohm is the hand or knife of Akuma. Now, if the Ohm tract has a truth hidden within a tall tale, it's probably that that part that says that this script was reserved for the learned, uh, which is further evidence that it was used as an aid for rote learning by the Druids and other learned professions. This probably contributed to its rapid decline as a system of writing after the introduction of Christianity and the Roman alphabet. So just briefly before we move on, I want to come back to something we mentioned earlier, which is the discovery of runic script by Odin in Norse mythology. And I was interested in the fact that Odin had to go through a lot of suffering to receive knowledge of the runes. And it was an influence on us placing Akma's discovery of Ohm in the story we told today. Because Akma is there, you know, working and he's suffering. And it's through his suffering that he comes about this uh, revelation. And I thought those two things, that thing and the fact that he's dropping bits of trees. So literally scattering letters just that it all fit in together. But anyway, Odin's suffering is voluntary. 
He hangs from the world tree for nine days and nine nights. And a story is told in Hovamel, a poem from the poetic Edda. So we mentioned the Ara Captain Anagis, um, also known as the Scholar's Primer earlier on. This was essentially a book of grammar dating from between the 7th and 12th century. And the dates vary depending on which academic you favour, but it is a se- it's basically a defence of vernaculars and it defends Irish over Latin as a literary language during that era. Um, the text, interestingly, has a competing origin tale for Ohm script. So this tale claims that a guy called Phineas Farsad, he, I just can't get over how great that name is, uh, who in some stories is noted as a king of Scythia. Uh, he discovers four alphabets, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and finally Ohm. And he says, well, Ohm is the best out of all of these because it was discovered last. And this is part of a larger story in which uh, Phineas creates the Irish language. So this crossover part of this in probably the longer version of the story of Phineas creating the Irish language appears in the Lower Gawala Aaron. Um, the Book of Invasions. And in case you missed where we covered that in previous episodes, it was essentially a collection of poems and prose written by monks in the Middle Ages to tell the story of Ireland from the creation of the world up to that time. So in brief, it tells of how Ireland was settled or taken by uh, six groups of people, including the Firbolg the, and the Tuatha And we've covered some of their stories in previous episodes. In fact, the saga today's story comes from the great battle of Maitura, uh, features in this book. So this book, although more myth than history, was actually accepted as conventional history by many poets and scholars right up to the 1800s. And it's interesting because it contains pseudo-histories connected to biblical stories, but also neatly includes a lot of quite pagan mythology which functions to put a nice Christian gloss on the folk folk stories that would have been popular in communities around Ireland at the time. So according to the Book of Invasions, Phineas Farsad and his son Nail go to the Tower of Babel, of all places, which is in Babylon, uh, located in what would be Iraq today. And in the book of Genesis in the Bible, the myth of the Tower of Babel is meant to explain why people speak different languages. It's, um, I think it's referred to as the confusion of tongues. And in this story, everyone originally actually speaks the same language, like the entirety of the human race speaks this one language. And following the Great Flood, they migrate east and they say, well, we'll build a city and we'll build a tower tall enough to reach heaven. And God watches this and he's not impressed and he says... Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. And that's from Genesis eleven one ninety. You kind of said that like you're a great biblical expert there. <laughs> Most people's knowledge of the Old Testament probably comes from that bit in Pulp Fiction where Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> is 
roar and on about Ezekiel 25, 17 or whatever it is. But anyway, I like that bit in the passage where it says that they, um, the Lord scattered them off and they went all over the place and they left off to build the city. <laughs> and I like that because it makes me think like a cork man had a hand <laughs> in writing Genesis. You know? oh, God, don't, don't give them that idea. You never hear the end of it. Ah, I have a lot of, I have a lot of graph for cork people. But anyway, so basically, look, what was happening in this story was God said, I'm not having anyone knocking in for a cup of tea. And if they can't, if these boys can't communicate with each other, there won't be any fear of it happening. So that'll be the end of their tower. Thanks very much. So following this, the people sort of scatter around the world and we have all of these different languages appearing. And this is known as the, the confusion of languages. So in the Archept Neges, Phineas follows the crowd that has scattered from Babylon uh, to study confu- the confused languages. But he's he turns up late and the speakers have left. So he sends his scholars to the tower to study them. Uh, that's the Tower of Babel to study them for 10 years. And after that, he studies the notes they bring back. So he creates other languages called Berlifania, named after himself. Ian Berla, named after Ir McNema. And he also creates the Betluis Nun, which is the Ohm. And that's when we say Betluis uh, Nun, it's like basically ABC because it's the, the th- first three letters. This is what he considers the perfect writing system for his languages. And from this we get Graverle, uh, or Graverle, which becomes Old and Middle Irish and eventually evolves into the Irish of today, Modern Irish. So this version also compares the materials used in the building of the Tower of Babel to the structure of languages. And it compares clay and water, wool, uh, blood, wood, lime, etc. to uh, nouns, pronouns, verbs, conjunctions and so on and so forth. And it says that Irish was created under the direction of Phineas, having chosen what was the best in each language to have in Irish. Now, this claim that Irish is the perfect language wouldn't be the first nor the last bit of hyperbole from the pen of an Irishman. But the Irish language does have a poetry to it. And, you know, it's intertwined with our history and our landscape and myth. And... You know, there's also possibly a very clever metaphor encoded in the story of Phineas Farsad. And actually, we've been talking about his name, and I think it's even funnier that, you know, it directly translates as Irishman the Pharisee. Um, So (laughs) this metaphor, there's a metaphor of him creating the perfect language from the scattered remnants of the tribes of Babel. And it links back to something we're saying about Om. I really like the fact that this is meant to be something that suggests that Irish is the best language because I can almost hear the screams of people listening to this podcast saying, how can you possibly suggest that a language which contains the Tishal Ginnija <laughs> might be the perfect language? I, I, I like, no, don't be scared of the Tishal Ginnija. It's grand. There are things far worse than that in the Irish language. There are other Tishals. There are other Tishals. <laughs> and noun declensions. Yeah. Come back to me when you're trying to learn those. <laughs> then we'll talk. But anyway, the, the so-called primitive Irish that is found on Ohm inscriptions is radically different from old Irish, which overtook it in about three centuries. Most of the evidence of it is limited to those inscriptions and thus personal names and place names. 
But from that little evidence, it seems to be not all that different from the proto-Celtic language spoken in continental Europe almost a millennium earlier. And structurally, it seems like it wasn't hugely different to the other Indo-European languages. Old Irish, however, has a very, very different syntax to other members of this language family. And three centuries is actually quite an unusually short passage of time for these changes to take place within it. In a paper called The Conversion and the Transition from Primitive to Old Irish, the linguist John T. Koch uh, explains his theory that changes in the language over three centuries isn't sufficient to explain the shift. And instead, what he proposes is that a vernacular that was similar to Old Irish had been around an awful lot longer and that Primitive Irish was a formal language and a language of learning. So when Christianity was introduced, it was replaced by Latin, allowing Old Irish to emerge as a literary language. So this is where the idea of a clever metaphor encoded in the story of Phineas Farsad comes in. Another linguist, Ranko Matasevich, takes this further in a paper called The Substratum in Insular Celtic, the, the main insular Celtic languages being Irish, Welsh, Scots Gaelic and Manx. So he argues that the significant differences between Primitive Irish and Primitive Welsh on the one hand and Old Irish and Old Welsh on the other can be attributed to pre-Indo-European substratum. Now, so Indo-European languages include most of the languages spoken in Europe today. The notable exceptions are Basque, Hungarian and Finnish. And substratum are elements of one language that influences another. In this case, we're talking about the influence of the pre-Indo-European and non-Celtic languages that were spoken in Ireland prior to the Iron Age. Matisovich presents as evidence a large number of words in Old Irish with no Indo-European etymology. And while Old Welsh also has many uh, loanwords of, you know, pre-Indo-European etymology, most of them aren't shared between the two. So they would have been adopted after the Celtic speakers arrived in Ireland and Britain, respectively. Old, Middle and Modern Irish also have, in many cases, a different verb, subject, object, order than other Indo-European languages. So one that is shared with the Berber language of North Africa and Ancient Egyptian. In these languages, rather than saying Marcus edits the podcast or Marcus does the dishes, it might be something like does Marcus the dishes or edits Marcus the podcast, perhaps. We also have cons consonant mutations in Irish, depending on what kind of word comes before it. So in Irish, you have an eclipsis. Um, in the Irish word for this is an uru. Uru uh, is also the word for just like a normal eclipse. My 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 best my favorite joke <laughs> that might one of my favorite songs is the total Uru of the heart. That's how I always remember what that word is. Anyway, and the nishin, uh, which is is a shavu in Irish, and these change the sound and spelling of the word, uh, by either putting a word in front or a letter in front of a word or uh, a letter after the first letter of the word, if that makes sense. So these change the sound and spelling of the word. So for example, a cow in Irish is bow. Uh, and you'll remember that from our episode on Bowen, but the but when you have the definite article in front of it, the cow, it's on vo, while his cow is a mo. Uh, interestingly, you'll also find this phenomenon in languages native to northwest Africa, for example, fulbe. 
Irish is an Indo-European insular Celtic language that shares common elements with old North African and North West African languages that has also got loan words from Basque and then later on Latin, Old Norse, Norman French and English. And so what we're really seeing is Phineas Farsad's perfect language constructed from the aftermath of Babel in metaphor, of course. And then on the other hand, in the Ohm, we're seeing the formal Celtic language of Agma that wasn't for the rustics. So it makes you think that maybe the people who wrote this stuff knew more about um, the origins of language and things than we give them credit for, or at least the people who orally, orally passed these stories down for centuries did. In conclusion, we can probably say that we approve of Ockham's anti-work policy, but not so much the elitist approach to learning employed by his followers. <laughs> I think that is just about all we have time for today. If you've been enjoying the show so far, you might consider becoming a patron. Be our Akma, be our god of poetry and podcasts. The Irish Mythology Podcast will, of course, always be free to listen to on the usual podcast platforms, but it isn't free to make. Your financial support can help us keep making it and invest in things like additional recording equipment, recording at locations associated with the sagas and paying actors and crew to make full cast productions of the sagas that you love. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson for the role of... Akma. Uh, there's a range of benefits at different price tiers and for just three euro you can get early access to each episode, longer cuts of each episode, story scripts for every episode, links to art, each tier, blah, loads. I'm not reading out that massive list. Look, there's loads of it. Go on <laughs> Patreon. Throw a few quid. Mm. Like, sure, it's a lockdown. There's no one's going out on the sesh anyway. <laughs> Our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Irish mythology podcast. And you can also find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, just Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram at Irish Mythology, and on the World Wide Web at Irish Mythology And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or another platform that includes ratings and you like the show, do us a favour, go on, give us a five star rating, and because it helps us uh, reach a wider audience. So, Slan Live, thanks for listening. It's been a great audience. And if you find yourself labouring away, trying to create an alphabet at work for your god boss, maybe you should just consider joining a union. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Listen, it's been lovely. (laughs) It's been lovely. Slán, and we'll see you next time. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast, written, presented, and produced by Marcus O'Hishkin and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license.